Hello and welcome back to Square Mile of Murder. I'm Kat and today we've got another upcycled uh, Patreon episode from the Mother Tier. Uh, because Taylor's still not quite up to recording so we wanted to give it another week just to make sure that she's alright. So this is one of, I think this is a third or fourth bonus episode we did for that tier on Patreon so that's from summer 2020 so quite old now. We hope you enjoy it, it's an old Victorian case, uh, the kind that we find really interesting so hopefully you will as well and then next week we will be back with a new episode it'll be december so we'll be into spy month um which yeah we're getting really excited about uh so we will see you all next week with a new episode uh, thank you for bearing with us and yeah wishing taylor all the best so enjoy this episode on Amelia Dyer and Victorian baby farming. I'm Taylor. I'm Kat. And welcome to this month's Square Mile of Murder Patreon bonus episode. We've got something a bit different for you this week. Rather than focusing on a specific case, we're going to look at the concept of baby farming during the Victorian era and how it led to the widespread murder of children across Britain. Just a, another lovely episode for you. But we promise no more dead babies for a month. Maybe a couple of months. Yeah. Yeah, let's shoot for a, a, a few months. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, our, I think it's the next, well, one of the next Patreon episodes uh, we have planned is is a fun one. So Yes. Look I'm out for that. I'm very excited about this. Yeah, me too. So, yeah. No um, more dead babies. Fewer dead babies. More laughs. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> So, before we get into this, first we need to understand exactly what baby farming was. Because, like, if you're picturing babies in, like, plant pots, wearing headbands that look like sunflowers, then that's not quite what we're talking about. Rather than cute little babies in plant pots, baby farming was the practice of accepting the custody of a child in exchange for payments. Now, some baby farmers would take in a child for regular payment, whereas others would adopt them for a large lump sum. So it was kind of like an early version of what we now think of as foster care and adoption, but it wasn't regulated or controlled as it is now. And some farmers would set up as lodgings for unwed expectant mothers, and after giving birth, the mothers would leave the child with the landlady until they found employment and then had the money to actually look after their child and could take them back. Um, so the practice was common in Britain throughout the Victorian era, and it was also known to happen in Australia and the USA, although it was not as common in those places as it was in Britain. Um, and while there were many reasons for a woman to 
put her child, quote, out to nurse with a baby farmer, um, the most common was illegitimacy um, and the social stigma that went along with having a child out of wedlock. Other reasons included um, mothers being unable to afford to take care of their children, so they would send their child to the baby farmer so they could go and work full-time. Now, in the case of illegitimacy or lack of money, the mother would usually pay the farmer periodically for the child's care with the aim of eventually taking back their child when they'd found stable work or if they like remarried or got married and could move somewhere with nobody knowing that the child was illegitimate. Mm-hmm. And some mothers, you know, did genuinely intend on taking back their child once they were in a position to do so. And they also tended to visit the child when they could spend time with them. But there were many who had no intention of ever taking their child back and essentially paid the farmers to adopt their child permanently. Yeah. And, I mean... We're not, there's no judging here. There's a judging-free zone. Oh, uh, absolutely. For, for all yeah. choices uh, of all shapes and sizes. Um, uh, all these women had their reasons, uh, just like uh, people have reasons today for putting a child up for adoption or having an abortion or, or um, getting help from social services. Um, and so... Just like that, these women in the Victorian era all had the reasons for giving their children away to uh, the, these so-called farmers. Um, uh, and when these women handed over their child to the baby farmers, they thought they were leaving them somewhere safe. But as it turned out, uh, their children were anything but yeah, so one interesting little factoid that I found out when I was doing research for this was that upper class, like the upper classes were actually well known for putting their child out to nurse, which is the proper term for sending your child to a baby farmer. Because the term baby farmer was used as like an insult and mostly kind of like in retrospect, like a farmer would never advertise themselves as a baby farmer. Hey, come... <laughs> Come drop your babies here at the baby farm. <laughs> and so upper class families would give their newborns to middle or lower class women in their village or local area and pay them to nurse them, you know, kind of like a wet nurse. Yeah. And then they would take the child back when they were around the age of like four or five. So they basically gave their child away until they were potty trained and had been taught table manners, etc. I mean, I have to say... I don't think that's such a bad idea. Like, give me gi- give me the child back when it's mildly self-sufficient and I'll be able to manage a <laughs> lot better. <laughs> I, I mean, I would say the same, but I'm not maternal in any way and I have no intention of ever having children. So, yeah. So, we're maybe yeah. not the best <laughs> so authorities. Like, yeah, okay, when it's when it's old enough to wipe its own ass, I can look after it for an hour or two. Exactly. Uh, But the English author, Jane Austen, and her siblings were all put out to nurse and not taken back back by their parents until they were about three or four years old. And I could only find one source on this because I didn't have time to read the whole Jane Austen biography, uh, which talks about this. But apparently uh, Jane Austen and her siblings 
had at some point talked about the emotional distance that this created between them and their parents. Could could easily understand how that could happen. Yeah, especially when you think back back to the Victorian age, children were still possessions. They weren't people of their own. So basically, just don't be a child during the Victorian era is what we're saying here. Um, so that's our that's our hot tip for you. <laughs> all now just don't be a victorian era child yeah totally relevant advice um so when mothers offered farmers a lump sum to look after their child as opposed to regular payments uh the money often wouldn't go very far and the farmers were left with a child who they now had to pay to raise rather than uh someone they were being paid to raise um and this is where some of the more unscrupulous farmers found a way to solve their problems and even make money uh, doing it. So basically, these children were worth more to the farmers dead than they were alive. But before we go into this, first we need to look at something else that was going on at this time. Something that I was going to describe as an epidemic, but that seems like the wrong word in the current global climate. Womp womp. And I have seen it described as an epidemic in multiple places but yeah anyway during the victorian era poisonous substances such as arsenic strychnine cyanide were widely available and we touched on this during the madeline smith episode in which her lover pierre emile langelier died from arsenic poisoning and these poisons were available everywhere and in everything yeah um and actually we just recorded an episode where someone supposedly tried to buy some cyanide. Yeah, prussic acid. Yeah. Um, cyanide and strychnine were popular choices, and they were found in ho- household items such as wallpaper, paint, rat poison, or you could just like buy them over the counter at, at a chemist or, or drugstore. Um, strychnine was for a number of years used as a performance enhancing drug in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, and it was thought to stimulate the body in the same way as caffeine. (gasps) Don't think that worked somehow. Stimulate it to death. Strychnine was known to have a bitter taste and cyanide also smelled and tasted like bitter almonds. Arsenic on the other hand was an odorless tasteless white powder that could be slipped into pretty much anything um like cyanide and strychnine arsenic was found in a whole bunch of crap um including common household cleaners again wallpaper rat poison flypaper face creams makeup and even medicine because nothing will cure your common cold like some good old (laughs) cyanide no that was arsenic (laughs) oh arsenic (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. Either either one will do. Just just give yeah. me all of them, really. So, along with poisons being available in pretty much every shop, as though they're a Starbucks or Costa Coffee, something else was becoming readily available in Victorian Britain, and that was life insurance. <laughs> Can you tell where we're going with this? Oh, yeah. So, nowadays, there are actually restrictions in the UK on insuring your children's lives. But in Victorian times, you could insure a child or spouse fairly easily with very few questions asked. I've seen cases where, like, people literally just take had taken insurance policies out on 
anyone everyone like yeah. that guy down the road and then they killed him and then collected the insurance yeah i'd seen like loads of things like that you know like on you know like forensic files and things like that where they're like okay so this person you know just tripped and fell off a cliff but they happen to be with their neighbors cousins aunties dogs best friends sister who just happened to take out life insurance on them yeah so yeah so just to sort of sum up here uh we have unregulated fostering and adoption systems in the uk a tasteless odorless poison which is available everywhere and cheap and easily attainable life insurance with no questions asked where do we think this (laughs) is going and it's important to point out that there were like perfectly innocent families out there who fostered or adopted these children and in fact the majority would have been perfectly normal people just needing you know maybe an extra bit of income or they're just nice people with time and money to take on an extra child or people who couldn't have children of their own Mm. and so as always it is just this small minority but boy were they bad so with arsenic easily available, many farmers would poison the child, whilst others would suffocate or drown them. Lovely. Whatever way they chose, the whole thing that would be recorded as a tragic accident and everyone would move on. I mean, you know, children do get into everything, you know, climb into everything. So maybe your arsenic just wasn't secured properly or they fell into a bowl of water face down or... So, yeah, tragic accident. And if the parents had any suspicions of foul play, most of the time they either couldn't afford to do anything about it, police weren't exactly that bothered. And oftentimes, you know, the social stigma attached to unwed mothers or even working mothers at that time meant that people were too afraid to speak up. Which makes sense. Yeah, and back in the Victorian times as well, like, good character was synonymous with innocence yeah so you know oh this unwed single mother versus this upstanding couple who who took in someone else's child yeah Yeah, totally um so some farmers would just take the lump sum offered to them by the parent and quickly kill the child but others would use that money to insure the child with them as a beneficiary in the event of the child's death. And then the child would uh, mysteriously die and the farmer would collect the life insurance money. Um, And then they would take in another child and continue the cycle. Um, Rather than outright murder the children in their care, some Some farmers would simply neglect the children uh, and allow them to starve or develop fatal illnesses. Yeah, and I actually read that those that just neglect them and left them to die, they would often actually just drug them with like, um, so it was this, it's like a mixture of cough syrup and some kind of like opiate drug that mm-hmm. would basically just keep them very docile while they were mm-hmm. dying. Lovely. And they'd just give them that and leave them in a corner. This is, this is such an uplifting episode. Yeah. <laughs> It's great. I don't know why I chose this one. I just thought, <laughs> oh, it's a different. It's oh, different. It, it is interesting, but also <laughs> a downer. <laughs> yeah. 
And uh, we are talking well over 100 years ago. So today, if someone was a habitual claimant on any kind of insurance, usually they would eventually be caught out because it shows up on insurance providers' databases, how many times you've claimed, what you've claimed or tried to claim for. Um, and in the case of like an unusual or suspicious death, police would put insurance companies on notice and what that means is that if police are suspicious about someone's death or a crime that you could claim against um you know such as say your house being broken into they give insurance companies notice to contact them to contact the police if you make a claim so that then they can see you know it's kind of circumstantial evidence if you're already building a case against someone yeah yeah. But back in the Victorian era, these kind of databases, wide-scale communications, everything like that just didn't exist. So you could easily just insure each child with a different insurer, go round the town to different insurers, and nobody would really be any the wiser. <sighs> so baby farmers also quite often had a tendency to move around to avoid detection. Um, because even in Victorian times, like the locals would start to become a little bit suspicious if all the children in your care were always just dying. Yeah, I mean, even if the insurance companies didn't catch on, somebody would notice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and we should also point out that infant mortality was high in the Victorian era and it wasn't like super unusual for a child to die in the first year of their life, no matter what kind of home they grew up in. But I mean, that said, eventually people would become suspicious if all of the children that came in and out of your house were dying. So by moving around, the farmers could avoid detection for a long time, as well as being able to use different insurance companies to take out policies on the children. And by the 1850s, poisoning deaths had become such an epidemic in the UK, and that is how it's described, um, that the Arsenic Act was signed into law. And this law required those who sold arsenic to keep a record of who had bought it, and it had to be signed for by the buyer, and it also required arsenic to be coloured an indigo blue colour to make it harder to disguise or mistake for another white powder. And some poisoning deaths were accidental, it is a white it is white powder. It could be mistaken for salt or sugar or literally anything. It was in face cream, everything. So dyeing it blue was supposed to help stop that. Unfortunately, this did little to stop the number of children dying at the hands of baby farmers. Um, because, you know, like we said, there are a number of ways in which the farmers could kill children in their care. And fostering and adoption carried on unregulated for decades. Um, However, throughout the 1860s and 1870s, a number of undercover investigations were carried out by British newspapers, including the Times. And articles appeared in the British Medical Journal on the dangers of unregulated baby farming. One of these articles stated that, quote, My conviction is that children are murdered in scores by these women, that adoption is only a fine phrase for slow or sudden death. In 1872, following articles in the British Medical Journal, British Parliament passed the Infant Life Protection Act in an effort to regulate fostering and adoption. 
Uh, the Infant Life Protection Act required foster parents to register with the local parish. So it was essentially under the control of the local church. And those who fostered with good intentions did register. But obviously those who were using fostering as a way to make money weren't going to register unless they were forced to. Yeah. And so despite the early efforts of lawmakers, the practice of baby farming continued for the rest of the 19th century. Sadly. Yeah. I mean, they're not, they're just going to not register. Um, so the Infant Life Protection Act of 1897 finally gave local authorities the power to control the registration of nurses responsible for more than one infant under the age of five for a period longer than 48 hours. Um, 11 years later, the Children's Act of 1908 said that, quote, no infant could be kept in a home that was so unfit and so overcrowded as to endanger its health, and no infant could be kept by an unfit nurse who threatened, by neglect or abuse, its proper care and maintenance. Um, and finally, with the Children's Act and later the Adoption of Children Regulation Act, adoption and foster care was gradually placed under state regulation and baby farming went into rapid decline. So as we said, this is mostly a British or mostly known to have happened in Britain, although it did happen in plenty of other countries, just doesn't seem to have been as widespread. Mm-hmm. Um, in Scandinavian countries, baby farmers were known as angel makers and... Ugh. Minnie Dean is the only woman ever to be executed by the state in New Zealand and she was a baby farmer and had been found guilty of infanticide. Hmm. So, yeah. Um, And it is impossible to know how many young lives were lost due to the greed of Victorian baby farmers with infant mortality so high anyway at this time and lack of regulation. However, there was one particularly prolific baby farmer named Amelia Dyer, a nurse who is believed to have killed as many as 400 babies and small children over the course of 25 years. Jesus. Yeah. That's more than one a month. That is 1.3 a month. Yikes. Um, Amelia Dyer was born in what is now suburban Bristol in southwest England in 1836. She was the youngest of five children born to Samuel and Sarah Hobley. Um, at the age of 24, she married her first husband, George Thomas. He was 59, but on their marriage certificate, he claimed to be 48 and she claimed to be 30 to reduce the age gap. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm in no rush to add extra years onto my age. I know. I mean... Like, <laughs> I had an argument with my mother the other day because she said I was 30 this year. And I was like, I am 30 next year. She was like, oh, yeah. I was like, 1991. Excuse you. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, I could maybe see like understand him lowering his age yeah but it's already a huge difference why not just like the six years isn't really yeah, even even then if he's claiming to be 48 and she's claiming 30 that's still 
18 years. Yeah. It's still just... so much. So why not just go go for it? Um, yeah. So following the wedding, Amelia began training as a nurse. And during her training, she met a midwife called Ellen Dane, who introduced her to another easier way to make money. Ellen told Amelia that she could make good money from letting rooms in her home to unwed expectant mothers and then farming off the babies for adoption, fostering, or allowing them to just die of neglect and malnutrition. Um, so one thing we didn't mention earlier when talking about unmarried mothers having to leave their children with baby farmers so they could find work was in the 1834 the Poor Law Amendment Act removed financial responsibility for an Ill- illegitimate child from the father. So they were the sole responsibility of the mother. Well, that's dumb. Fuck that shit. Some farmers were able to negotiate £80 to nurse a child uh, from a well-to-do family who wanted to keep quiet the birth of a child out of wedlock. So this might not sound like much to us now to take on someone else's child, but eighty pound in eighteen sixty nine, which is when uh, Amelia Dyer started operating, would be nine and a half thousand pound today, or eleven thousand seven hundred dollars. That's quite a bit. That's a, that's actually quite a lot of money. Yeah. Um, Amelia didn't act on the knowledge imparted to her about baby farming um, by Ellen until 1869 when her husband George died um, and he left Amelia with a young daughter and no income. So keen to make money, Amelia began taking in expectant mothers. Uh, She also advertised to nurse and adopt a baby in return for a substantial one-off payment and adequate clothing for the child. Um, In her advertisements and meetings with potential clients, she assured them that she was respectable and married, and that she would provide a safe and loving home for the child. Uh, In 1872, she married William Dyer, and the couple had two children together, Mary Ann... Oh. (laughs) Mary Ann. Oh, okay. (laughs) Mary Ann and... I was like, this is a long person. Mary Ann and William Samuel. (laughs) No, Mary Ann and William Sam- Samuel. Let me start that again. Um, <laughs> the couple had two children together, Mary Ann and William Samuel. But Amelia left her husband at some point. Uh, we're not entirely sure because, you know, Victorian era records are pretty sketchy. Um, uh, from what we could find out, it was after leaving her second husband that Amelia found herself once again without an income. And that is when she... Oh, half the script has disappeared. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess. On. That is when she turned to baby farming. There you go. There. <laughs> okay. So... <laughs> uh, at that the is when she of... joined the circus. <laughs> well, could be fun. You never know. Uh, at the beginning of her baby farming... Career, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, scheme. Murderous rampage. 
throughout southern England. Although it's not really a rampage, it's more of a... It's like a slow burn, kind of. Yeah, it's like a prolonged torture. Um, It does seem that she actually cared for the children she took in, but then pretty soon she decided to forego the expense of actually feeding the child and just let them starve to death. Yikes. But soon enough, even that was too much effort for her, and she began just straight up murdering them babies. Uh, Pretty much as soon as she took custody of them. Dyer was arrested in 1879 after a doctor became suspicious of the number of infant deaths she had asked him to certify. Uh, However, she was sentenced to just six months hard labor for neglect rather than murder or manslaughter. Dyer and those around her claimed that the six-month sentence was enough to destroy her mentally um, and... Upon her release, she tried to return to nursing uh, and had spells in psychiatric hospitals. So, Daya went back to baby farming, uh, but she also began abusing alcohol and opiate substances. And she quickly realized that she'd made a mistake by asking doctors to verify and certify the deaths. And so instead, she began disposing of bodies herself. I mean, yeah. That is more efficient, unfortunately. Yeah. She was, however, now on the police radar. And, you know, having been uh, sentenced for neglect. And she was conscious that parents would also at some point come looking to reclaim their children. And without a death death certificate, she had no excuse for the child being absent from her care. Oh, little Jimmy. He just, he went out for a pack of cigarettes and he never came home. He went and joined a circus. Yeah. Um, At some point in the late 1880s slash early 1890s, um, Dyer began to involve her daughter, Mary Ann, and son-in-law, Arthur, in the family baby farming business. The family frequently relocated to different towns around southern England and used many different aliases to escape uh, the police or parents looking to claim their children um and marianne helped her mother to dispose of the bodies of the murdered babies but her murderous money-grabbing scheme came to an end in 1896 um in january 1896 25 year old evelina marman gave birth to an illegitimate daughter named doris in a boarding house in cheltenham she quickly sought offers of adoption and placed an advertisement in the Bristol Times and Mirror newspaper that read, Wanted, respectable woman to take a young child. Evelina intended to go back to work and hoped to eventually reclaim her child once she had enough money. Coincidentally, next to Evelina's ad was one which read, Married couple with no family would adopt a healthy child, nice country home, terms, comma, 10 pounds. Um, Evelina responded to a Mrs. Harding and a few days later she received a reply from Oxford Road in Reading. Mrs. Harding uh, wrote, I should be glad to have a dear baby girl, one I could bring up and call my own. She continued, we are plain, homely people in fairly good circumstances. I don't want a child for money's sake, but the company and home comfort. 
I and my husband are dearly fond of children. I have no child of my own. A child with me will have a good home and a mother's love. Now, Evelina wanted to pay a more affordable weekly fee for the care of her daughter, but Mrs. Harding insisted on being given a single payment of £10 in advance. And Evelina was in dire straits, so she reluctantly agreed to pay the £10. And in late March, so the baby would be about two months old, Mrs. Harding arrived in Cheltenham. And we all know how much I love to look up inflation rates (laughs) and the like, so £10 in 1896 would be about 1300 today. That is a lot of money to pay in advance to a stranger you've never met to look after your child. So that does show just how sort of desperate her circumstances were. Yeah. Do we know, like, so how long, like, had if this had been a legitimate deal, like how long that £10 would have covered for care? I'm, or I'm not sure because from what I can find, some it was like a lump sum and it was like one off and... After that, they covered the farmer covered the case, the cost of mm-hmm. raising a child. They said others, it was like an ongoing thing. Mm-hmm. So, I'm not really sure to be honest. Huh. Interesting. It seemed that everyone kind of had their own <laughs> arrangements. Everyone had their own system. Yeah. Um. So, Evelina was surprised by Mrs. Harding, who we probably could have guessed by now is. Mrs. Dyer. Dyer. Yeah. Um, so Evelina was surprised by Dyer's advanced age. She's about 60. Um, although nobody is sure of her exact birthday. Um, and Evelina was surprised by her stocky appearance. But uh, because Dyer was affectionate towards Doris, Evelina handed over her daughter and a cardboard box of clothes. Um, still distressed at having to give up uh, care of her daughter. Evelina accompanied Dyer to Cheltenham Station and then on to Gloucester. She returned to her lodgings, quote, a broken woman. A few days later, she received a letter from Mrs. Harding saying all was well. Evelina wrote back but received no reply. But Dyer didn't travel to Reading as she told Evelina she would. She instead went to 76 Mayo Road in Wilsdon in London, where her daughter, Polly, now 23, was living. And Daya quickly found some white dressmaking tape and wound it twice around the baby's neck and tied a knot. Unfortunately for baby Doris, death would have been slow and painful. And Daya later said, I used to like to watch them with the tape around their neck but it was soon all over with them. Yikes. That just shows you how evil this woman was. Yeah. Um, the following day, a second child was brought to the house on Mayo Road, a young boy named Harry, and Dyer removed the dressmaking tape from the body of baby Doris and tied it around Harry's neck to kill him in the same way. Dyer then paid the unsuspecting landlady and she and her daughter fled with the bodies wrapped in a carpet bag, and the clothes that Evelina had given Dyer for Doris were taken to the pawnbroker's shop. I mean, she's not even just content with killing the baby and taking the money. She's got to then sell yeah. 
the clothes as well and that's every every i don't know why but that just makes it so much worse like no it it does because it's like it's a it's just even more opportunities to make money that's all she's interested in so daya took the bag containing the two bodies to redin where she weighted it down and put it into the river However, a few days earlier, the body of a young girl had been found in the River Thames and it was traced back to a Mrs. Thomas, which was one of Dyer's many aliases. In the bundle that the child was wrapped up in, there was an old train ticket stub with the name Mrs. Thomas and an address written on it. Now, unfortunately, this wasn't classed as enough evidence to arrest or even interview Mrs. Thomas, so police devised a plan. Um, The police placed her under surveillance and decided to use a young woman as a decoy. They arranged for the young woman to meet with Dyer at her home under the pretense that she needed someone to look after her newborn baby, but instead detectives turned up at the house and then they raided her home. Uh, The officers were struck by the stench of decomposition, but there were no human remains found on the premises. Police did, however, find the same white dressmaking tape that had been used to kill the child who was found in the Thames just days before Dyer killed baby Doris, as well as telegrams and letters arranging for the adoption of numerous children. Like, if you're going to be running, like, a baby farming scheme, destroy the letters. Yeah. It's like, it's like, ser- well, I mean, she was a serial killer. It's like serial killers keeping trophies. Yeah, just don't leave a paper Why? trail. Yeah. It's not going to help you. Top tips. Yeah. We shouldn't really be yeah. giving tips to successfully commit crimes. No. So don't listen to our top tips. No. So police discovered that more than 20 children had been had been handed over to a Mrs. Thomas in the previous three months. And this rate of murder over the 20 years that she was known to be operating as a baby farmer is what led to the estimated number of 400 victims. Yeah, I think I said 25 years earlier, it was 20 years. Jeez, so that's, that's an there's even no, tighter time yeah, frame. But there's no like exact records, obviously, of like where she was and, like I say, because of, the circumstances of the mothers there's no there's no paper trail so nobody really knows yeah. but that is the i think the conservative estimate is like 200 but based on that the uh it's the upper upper bracket is 400 victims so but at that i mean even at that conservative estimate of 200 like she would that's be... 10 a year but like wouldn't that make her one of the most, if not the most prolific serial killers ever? Yes. And it's interesting, and we're going to get on to that in a bit. Ah, okay. Jump to the Because I have some thoughts about that. Okay. Mm. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Dyer was arrested on April 4th and charged with murder. Her son-in-law, Arthur, was charged as an accessory. And during April, the Thames was dredged. I don't think the entire river was stretched because I can't remember how long it is. It's a big old river. It's this big. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm guessing it was parts around Redding. Yeah. 
where she'd been known to dispose of bodies. And six more bodies were discovered during dredging, including her last two victims, Doris and Harry. Each baby had been strangled with white tape, which Dyer later told the police, quote, was how you could tell it was one of mine. Ugh. Wow. And 11 days after handing her baby Doris to Daya, Evelina Marman identified her daughter's remains. Um, I mean, that is just heartbreaking. Like, you read, like, she was already, like, broken by having to give her daughter up for a period, like, until she got, until she was, like, financially stable and could provide a good home and thought she was, like, doing the best thing. And then, like, less than two weeks later. Yeah. No. She's got to identify remains. That's horrible. Um, Dyer was held at the Reading Jail, spelled G-A-O-L, like the I fun olden days. pronounce it Gaol. Gaol, yeah. <laughs> um, she was held at Reading Jail uh, from her arrest until her trial on May 22nd. Uh, during the seven-week period, she wrote a confession letter exonerating her daughter and son- son-in-law. Uh, saying, quote, neither my daughter Marianne Palmer nor her husband Alfred Ernest Palmer, I do most solemnly ne- declare neither of them had anything at all to do with it. They never knew I contemplated doing such a wicked thing until it was too late. I am speaking the truth and nothing but the truth as I hope to be forgiven. Uh, I and I alone must stand before my maker in heaven to answer it all witness my hand amelia dyer very verbose yeah and what's interesting is there's two names that are given in re- like when you're reading about this two names are given for a son-in-law yeah arthur so alfred and alfred, alfred ernest and arthur so <laughs> i don't really know which one just it is. pick the one also at one point she went to polly's house but who's Polly? Yeah, so Polly is a name. Uh, Polly is a nickname for Marianne. Uh, okay, that makes more sense. So yeah, lots of names. Yeah. And at her trial at London's Old Bailey on May 22nd, Dyer pleaded guilty by reason of insanity to the murder of Doris Marmon. Her defence team offered her two stairs in psychiatric hospitals in Bristol as evidence to support the insanity plea. But the prosecution argued that Dyer's mental instability had been a ploy to escape detection as the stairs in hospital cons- coincided with times that she, was, that she thought her crimes were about to be exposed. And it took the jury only four and a half minutes to find Dyer guilty. <laughs> and she was sentenced to death by hanging. And in the three weeks between her trial and execution, Diet filled five exercise books with her last true and only confession. Oh, boy. Well, if her declaration of, uh, you know, exoneration for her daughter and son-in-law are any, any indication, I'm pretty sure that there were only about five sentences in all five of those books <laughs> <laughs> yeah like uh 
Come up for air sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and think about what you're saying and could it be said in a much simpler way? You're not Mu- being paid by the word. Must you use six words when one will do? <laughs> um, so the night before her execution, Dyer was visited by the prison chaplain who asked her if she had anything to confess. She handed him the five books and asked, isn't this enough? <laughs> I mean... Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you're actually supposed to go into the confessional and confess with, like, your voice. Yeah. Like, don't make him read. He came to you. At least give him yeah. the courtesy of just talking to them. Yeah, it's it's not like a, it's not like a get out of free, get out of jail free card where you're like, okay, I'll just think. I'll just <laughs> think my confession yeah. and God will read my mind. It's mm, fine. It doesn't work like that. Um, so some have speculated that this may have been, um, in an attempt to delay her execution, but if that was her plan, it definitely didn't work, uh, because on Wednesday, June 10th, 1896, Amelia Dyer was hanged at Newgate prison in central London. She was asked on the scaffold if she had anything to say. She said, I have nothing to say before being hung at exactly 9 a.m. Sadly, we will never know how many children died at the hands of Amelia Dyer. And although the official estimates do range from 200 to 400, she was only ever convicted of the one murder. And there is a sort of fringe, it's not even a fringe theory, it's like a fringe, fringe theory, (laughs) that Amelia Dyer may have been Jack the Ripper. So... The like the Jill the Ripper theory that mm-hmm. the murderer was a woman has always kind of been around, and there are a few who believe that Dyer murdered the five canonical victims during botched abortion attempts, hmm. and that she may have killed many more women. Although there is no real evidence of any sort to link Dyer to these murders in Whitechapel, this is literally speculation based upon the fact that she was a serial killer operating at the same time and that she was known to operate in the London area. Um, and the other reason I find this interesting is because like, Jack the Ripper is credited, if that's the right word, mm-hmm. as being the first serial killer of the modern era. But Dyer was operating, well, sort of much earlier. No. But also crossed over the same time period. So she started in like the 60s, the 1860s through to the 1890s, whereas Jack the Ripper was known to operate in 18, was 1888. I think so. So she actually covered a wider, like a wider time and geographical space mm-hmm. and, you know, killed as many as 400. So I just find it interesting that she's not considered a serial killer because she's only been convicted of the one murder despite confessing to many more and there being evidence of, you know, let's say, well, up to 200. Just the... At the very least. Just from, like, right before she was arrested, that's, what, eight alone? Well, Six or eight? Yeah, they found the six bodies in the river. Yeah. Plus the one that had already been found. Yeah, so, so seven. Yeah, so that would make her one of the most prolific serial killers in history. Yeah. 
but she's not considered. And you know, once again, just a man taking credit for things. (laughs) How dare they take this away from women? (laughs) Just what you want to be known for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the I was immediately struck by the number, and that like that is a huge number of victims that would definitely make Mm -hmm. her one of the most prolific serial killers ever, if not the most. The most. Yeah. That we know of anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is interesting that she's really not considered a serial killer just because of the circumstances of her trial. Mm. Um, Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that, I mean, we talked about it in the Ray and Faye Copeland episode where they were, set up, at least he was a serial killer, but it wasn't, it was literally financial gain. There yeah, was no, it was about money. There was no emotion behind it as there is in most case of most serial killers. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Yeah. Just a really, really bad woman. Yeah. Not a good woman. And not uh, and, <laughs> not a good practice. Yeah. No, and her daughter actually carried on the oh, family business after her. Great. Um, yeah. Was she ever caught? So, I'm not sure. I don't think so. I think she kind of gave it up. Well, that's good. Um, or was she? No, sorry. I lied. She was in... She was on trial... A couple of months after her mother, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, there was various uh, suspicions in the years following that her daughter was still doing it, but she at some point was up on trial in association with her mother's crimes. Jesus. Um, Despite, you mean that the, the affidavit that was so clearly legally sound didn't <laughs> yeah. convince anybody? Mm. Go figure. Yeah. And on that note, uh, that is uh, the case of Amelia Dyer and this sort of general practice of Victorian baby farmers. Oh, boy. Um, So let us know what you think uh, here on Patreon or on social media. You know, uh, I don't even, there's no, I can't even make a, a quip about like would yeah. you farm your baby because no you wouldn't dear listener you are better than that i mean if you put them in a plant pot and dress them up like a sunflower that's acceptable that's acceptable you you as can long as you don't leave them out in the rain you can cabbage patch doll your your child yeah which might even be too old in a reference these days <laughs> <laughs> oh. and on that note Thank you for listening. We will be back next Wednesday with a new episode of Square Mile of Murder. Yes. Or Tuesday for our Patreon. Yes, you'll hear it here Tuesday. So uh, thank you and bye-bye. Bye. See you next time. Cabbage patch your child. What?